This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad will definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Phil and this is Julian. Now then. Uh, we're two middle-aged northerners, a.k.a. the Rock Geeks, giving a close inspection of the albums that we love, exploring who made them and how, where and when they were made. Uh, last time out, we took a look at Metallica's breakthrough third album, Master of Puppets, and thanks very much if you took time out of your day to listen to that. It's much appreciated, and we sincerely hope you enjoyed what you heard. Uh, full disclosure, we are recording this way, way in advance of completely having our podcasting shit together. Um, but if you haven't already listened to that episode, you can probably do so via our website or whichever streaming service you subscribe to. Um, on this episode of The Rock Geeks, we're going to dive headfirst into some of music's darker places by taking a long, hard and comfortable look at the Manic Street Preacher's third album, The Holy Bible. How did you uh, find research in this one, Julian? I feel like my research was done in 1994 because <laughs> I bought it when it first came out. Um, it, it seems very, very, very familiar to me, does all of this and all of the story around how it came together, all the stuff with Richie Edwards. Um, yeah, so I feel like I knew a lot of stuff about this album already, all the background and the context of it, you know, in the band's... <laughs> you know, their history and what's been going on with them beforehand and then what followed afterwards. What about you? Um, well, I, I, this is a running theme. Like, I was scared shitless of this album when it <laughs> came out. Like, music isn't supposed to scare you, really, is it? Um, Why well, were you scared? Well, maybe it is. Um, because it confronts you with a lot of topics and issues and, and, and what have you that maybe you're not prepared to face just don't read the know. lyrics well like yeah 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 um I, i'll be honest i found this a really hard slog like a look when i first started listening to the album like it's the first time i've listened to it properly ever right like i've listened to it like I, I, obviously i'd heard faster um and she is suffering Revol, that was a single as well yeah wasn't it? I'd, I'd heard i remember Revol when that came out as a single but the rest of the album was a bit of a uh, mystery to me so when did you start listening to it then shortly after we d discussed doing it as a uh, as an episode so like uh, only the last few months yeah 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 what prompted you well i knew i knew you liked it mm. so i thought it'd be a good one for you to talk about yeah um, really what prompted me was um i'd been listening to gold against the soul and reacquainting myself with that which i think is one of my favorite yeah. manix albums i think it's just a brilliant album um, and I was initially going to suggest doing that one, but um, I thought this one would be more interesting because, it, like I say, it's got that 
Yeah. Backstory with Richie Edwards, um, the I lyric about, of content and all that. I thought about know. doing Gold Against the Sold as well because I think it's overlooked. Yeah. Don't you? I just think that because the band are quite dismissive of it as well um, and they speak about, you know, they felt like they've got too far down a route of, you know, residential recording studios and, you know, kind of being in a, putting themselves in a situation which they felt was at odds with the, you know, what they what they believed. But I, I, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> well, when, when I first started listening to it in the car, I, 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 you know, I thought this is this album is amazing. The depth and uh, breadth of it is just stunning, you know, in terms of lyrical content and the, the issues that they're singing about. Not only that, the compositions, the arrangements, the harmonic structure of songs, just brilliant from start to finish. But after about two months of listening to this album over and over again, it really did start to taint my worldview. It's it's you a know. common if 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 you if you read about or if you kind of go on forums, people who comment on the Manic Street Preachers or journalists or anybody who looks back on this album and says how much they love it, it's a common theme that people can listen to it for, in short bursts for a short amount of time and then they put it to one side yeah. for like years. Yeah, it's heavy. It's, so I remember when it first came yeah. out, you know, like I, I was, you know, I loved it and I listened to it on the loop for a really, really long time. And then I probably didn't listen to it again for maybe four or five years and then I revisited it again. And it's one of those albums where when you put it on, you just kind of, you're just kind of taken aback by how brilliant it is. But at the same time, you know that you're not going to be listening to it for much longer before you put it away again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um, heavy going. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of like staring into the sun a little bit, you know, um, or, or like a car wreck. You know, you, you know, you shouldn't look too closely, but you can't help yourself. And and it does. the the th- The thing about it is, is that it, it stands up to in- incredibly close scrutiny so well that it draws you in. But then once you're in, you want to get out because it's so mm. you know. Yeah, you know, I I think I I probably listen to this in a different way to you because I'm not I don't pour over lyrics, which might seem weird for an album like this, which is so you know where the lyrics are one of the first things that people ever talk about when they refer to this album. But my primary love of this album is is, is just the music, is is how it how the songs are. I like how it sounds, and so all of the stuff which you might be referring to here. Um, which is quite uncomfortable listening. I get it, but I've not been into that place where I'm just like, oh, I can't listen to this anymore. It's too traumatic. Yeah. It's just I find it such an intense album, sound-wise, that that's what makes me just think, I think I just need to leave that to one side for a little bit. Yeah, I think um, I think intensity is a, a word that is going to be yeah. referenced quite a lot. Um, so should we, uh, should we crack on? Yep. Okay, so the artist, as we've discussed, is Manic Street Preachers. Uh, the personnel, uh, we've got James Dean Bradfield on lead rhythm guitars uh, and lead vocals. Um, Richie Edwards, uh, credited as Richie James, um, didn't play on the album. He's credited with uh, rhythm guitars, but he didn't actually play any uh, a single note on the album, um, although his contribution, you could argue, was mm. far, far greater than... Uh, than than pl- just playing guitar. So Nicky Wire bass guitar and the occasional backing vocal, uh, and Sean Moore on drums. And uh, he was the guy that did the sampling for the intros, of which, of which there are tons of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, producers on this album, uh, Manic Street Preachers, uh, Alex Silver um, got a producing credit for it. Steve Brown uh, got a producing credit for She's Suffering. Uh, Steve Brown produced Generation Terrorists. Um, engineers uh, on this album, the recording engineer was Alex Silver, uh, whose other credits include Skunk and Nancy, remember them? Mm. Um, Texas, uh, John Bon Jovi, Sneaker Pimps, Shakespeare's Sister and Finlay Quay. Well, how did John Bon Jovi end up within that? They're all really yeah. British acts, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And then it's you've like, got the Jovi turning up. Yeah, it, it's, like the, it's like a... Uh, Glastonbury uh, 1996 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Mark Freegard was the mix engineer um, whose credits include uh, uh, Last Splash by the Breeders one of my uh, I'm, I'm not going to say guilty pleasures because it's not I'm not guilty it's it's a pleasure one Go of on. my pleasures in life Delamitri oh yeah uh, Mark Freegard did an album of theirs called uh, Some Other Suckers Parade which is superb um, Marillion do you like them as well uh, the singles, maybe. Mm. Um, and Sisters of Mercy. In addition to, to that, Tom Lord Algy was the US mix engineer, which we will talk about. We will get into a heated debate about that later. Uh, but his <laughs> credits sure are somewhat more mm. stratospheric. Uh, he did uh, Stevie Winwood, Higher Love, Crash Test Dummies. He did that one. Uh, Santana, The Supernatural, which was like a Grammy oh, yeah. award-winning monster. The one with Smooth on it. and Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and he's also done U2, Simple Minds, The Rolling Stones, Pink, Peter Gabriel, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Blink-182, Avril Lavigne, Hanson, mm. Bop. Maybe he's done mm-mm-mm and Bop. Maybe that's the prerequisite yeah. to work with him. Possibly. Um, and some 41. Cool. So, it's not a bad career, is it? It's not bad at all. Um, Mastering-wise, we'll, we'll touch on this a bit later, but I could not find any information about right, the mastering okay. of this album. Anyway. Um, okay, so it was recorded uh, in early 94, between, um, I think, January and May, from what I can gather, uh, maybe February and May, um, and it was released on August the 29th, 1994, on Epic, uh, which is a subsidiary of Sony. Interestingly, it was released the same day as Definitely Maybe by Oasis. Mm. Should we do a bit more context? Yes, let's let's jump into it. Quiz. Go on then. British Prime Minister. John Major. Correct. US President. Clinton. Yep. Vice President. Uh, the name will come up again at some Al point. Al Gore. Yep, Al Gore. Russian leader. Was it Yeltsin by it then? It was. Well done. Uh, Tony Blair had just been... Uh, just won... The war criminal, Tony Blair. Yes, yeah, the war on. criminal, Tony Blair. Uh, he'd just been elected the... Oh, he's the winner of the British Labour Party leadership election. Right. And it's a weird time, I think, 1994, because a lot of the seeds of how we live our life now were sown regarding technology. So things like um, Amazon.com, that name was first registered. Wow, that far back? Yep, just to sell books initially. Right. I recall that. I do remember Amazon kind of starting. I don't think I remember it kind of as, as far back as that. So in 1994, there were 2,700 websites. How many do you reckon there is now? 2,700 trillion. That's two billion, yeah. Wow. Mm. So like a few other things happened that year. Remember Free as a Bird, the Beatles thing? I do, the yeah. The anthology. Yeah. They did that. Yeah. April 94. What happened in April 94? Um... 
Somebody died. Oh, Kurt Cobain. <laughs> he did. Yes. Which yeah. I think had a bit of an, um, an, uh, an effect, had a bit of an effect on Richie Edwards. The Channel Tunnel was opened. For those of you who don't know, that links England to France. Nelson uh-huh. Mandela became president. So films, cast your mind back. Forrest Gump, Lion King, True Lies, uh, Dumb and Dumber, classic. Yeah. Uh, the Mask and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. So that's where we were in... Uh, Some good soundtracks there. There Pulp, are, yeah. Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump are excellent soundtracks. I just find it really weird that Oasis released, definitely maybe on the same day as this album, and they were all lumped into the same kind of Brit poppy type category at one point. I think um, Manic Street Preachers supported Oasis at a few of their like gigs around that time. It's it's incredible really to think that because I mean I I just I just I'm not I don't think there's much sophistication to Oasis music. No. Whereas when we're looking at this, um, you know, there's way more, isn't there? I can't yeah. imagine Richie Edwards and Liam Gallagher were particularly close. I think they actually liked it. I remember reading around the time that they were fans of Oasis, you know, they, 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 they just liked them. Right. I've never, ever got it, really. No. Ever. No, me neither. Me neither. Also, KLF burnt a million pounds. Oh, I remember them that doing year. that. Yeah, didn't they do Justified and Ancient with, um, was it Tammy Wynette? Yes. Yeah. In 2004, though, they admitted that they regretted burning the money. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would share in that regret. I think. I, I, in fact, I'd share in that regret. The moment that the match touched the the, the notes, I'd be like, "Oh shit! What have damn I done? it! Damn it!" Yeah, and also the last one, little factoid: Blaze Bailey, yeah, was hired by Iron Maiden in 1994. Uh, do you know what? I I love Blaze Bailey. Wolf Spain, as you know, are probably my favourite metal band of all time. <laughs> Um, and I understand why he did it. Um, and and, and we, we talked about this briefly in the first one, but I blame Steve Harris for not changing the keys of any of the songs. Yeah. If he'd have just changed the keys... I know, I know you're bitter about this, aren't you? I am. Blaze Bailey could have been the best vocalist I made and ever had. I shouldn't have mentioned it. Should yeah. I? Never mind. But also important around this time was the start of Britpop. We'd not got to its height, but Parklife had been out. Yep, yep. Uh, bands like Pulp um, were becoming more popular. So that gives a bit of context to what would come after this because the album after the Holy Bible is Everything Must Go, which was definitely kind of put this, put them in the midst of all of those bands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this one is nothing like that. Um, yeah. No, this, this, is, um, this is the sound of a band with a lot to say who've been left to their own devices. Um, without the influence of an A&R man going, I don't really hear a single. So um, the album was recorded at Soundspace Studios in Cardiff. Uh, the Manic Street Preacher's choice of studio for the recording of the third album has now gone down in rock and roll folklore. When it was suggested by Epic that they fly out and record the album in Barbados, uh, the band flatly refused um, and instead pretty much did a 180 degree and, and did the exact opposite of what was being suggested uh, and returned to the Welsh capital Cardiff. 
very possibly at the behest of Alex Silver, who, in his words, begged uh, Nicky Wire to record the album at Soundspace, which at the time was a tiny £50-a-day facility in the city's red light district, which I think is probably the most suitable studio for this album Sounds, to be yeah. recorded at. Um, it's worth noting that the Manics recorded uh, their cover of Suicide is Painless uh, with Alex Silver at right. Soundspace which is the studio where Silver began his career as, a, as, a, as an assistant engineer. Um, to give you some idea as to how much value for money this proved to be for Epic, outside studios where the band's previous album, Gold Against the Soul, was recorded, uh, cost £2,000 a day to hire. Which a in day? Ni- yeah, which in 1993, was it, when that was recorded? A bit of, yeah, I think yeah, it came out around that That's time. That's a lot it? of money. Where was it? Where did they record that? Um, outside studios, which I believe is in Oxfordshire. However, at the time, um, recording at uh, Soundspace could have proved to be a risky strategy, as Epic Keasley could have rejected the album on the grounds of it not sounding quite polished and produced enough. Mm. Um, but there could well be a strong argument to suggest that the overarching themes of the album would not have suited a bigger, more commercially-minded production, uh, which may be the reason why the gamble paid off. And indeed, in an interview with Pop Matters, uh, James Dean Bradfield said the following of Soundspace Studios. It was kind of standard practice back in those days. You go to a residential studio and you record a record. Residential studios back then were really, really lovely places to create and record. But we knew that it was just wrong for the music, especially with the lyrics that had inspired the music. We knew that it would be a wrong decision to try and create this kind of music which had threadbare emotions and hard political intent and acute observatory historical references in it. We knew that if we ended up trying to create this music somewhere in Surrey, England, which had four poster beds and every technical specification you could wish for, there would be something slightly off-message about that. I suppose in our youthful delusional state, we thought there should be some kind of method recording, our version of method acting. We should immerse ourselves in a shitty environment and try to replicate the edge in the music. And that's what we did. We hired a studio, which we had used before in Cardiff, which was kind of in the red light area and had no mod cons. It was a very, very monotone kind of experience. And we decided we wanted that kind of utilitarian vibe to try and rub off in the music, I suppose. It all sounds pretentious, and I wouldn't want to repeat it now, but we were young. So... You know, they, they they obviously were aware that what they were doing, the music that they, re, that they were recording and the lyrical content within that needed a certain space and a certain atmosphere. Yeah, it is like being a method actor, I suppose, isn't it, for yeah. them? You know, you, yeah. you would want to be somewhere which kind of had an influence on the sound. And I suppose the actual size of the studio, where it is... Um, had a direct influence, but I can't imagine that it was full of all the most cutting-edge equipment as well, which they could use. So maybe they had to be a bit more inventive, and I know there are bits on the album where they, you know, they had to be a bit more inventive with like some of the sounds which they used on it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a perfect venue to record it. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, everything that uh, James Dean Bradfield Thank says. You. Oh, sorry. Says there, and and what <laughs> you just said, yeah. Um, authenticity is the key here, mm. and I think it would have been disingenuous to record it anywhere other than Soundspace Studios. 
And as you've just touched upon, so far in the series we've talked about uh, some of the world's most revered recording studios, Electric Lady Studios, Sound City, etc. Um, and I think it's pretty fair to say that Sound Space Studios is, by comparison with its limited size and relatively basic recording capabilities, not anywhere near um, the same high standard. To give just a few examples of this, uh, where the most expensive recording studios might boast a long list of vintage microphones uh, to bring a certain mojo to recording, the microphones used to record the Holy Bible, as detailed by engineer and co-producer uh, Alex Silver, in an interview to Steve Bateman for repeatfanzine.co.uk, were all pretty much standard mass-produced mics uh, that could be found in any commercial studio worth its salt. Um, SM57, Sennheiser MD421, AKG D12 and AKG451. Um, and the standout mic in terms of expense and quality being a Neumann U87, uh, which was used on the vocals. Um, just to backtrack just slightly, Steve Bateman's website, repeatfanzine.co.uk, is an amazing resource for anyone who wants to dive into the Manic Street Preachers, especially the Holy Bible. I recommend that folks go and visit repeatfanzine.co.uk if you're interested in this uh, this album and the Manics in in general. So where Electric Lady and Sound City both boasted custom-made Neve consoles costing tens of thousands of pounds even back in the 70s when they were built, Sound Station Studios housed an Allen & Heath Sabre, uh, which upon its release in in the late 80s cost just £6,000 which is about £70,000 less than the desk at Sound City cost um, 15 years prior. Um, Likewise with multi-track tape machines, uh, where higher-end studios like Electric Lady, etc., were using 2-inch 24-track Studer tape machines, um, Soundspace was using a 1-inch 16-track Fostex E16 tape machine. Now, both the Allen & Heath Sabre console and the Fostex E16 multi-track tape machine uh, they're both perfectly respectable bits of kit right you know and and i'd I'd be more than happy to own both those things in in my own uh personal studio if i had one but the point is that the manics um had made a conscious decision to eschew the super high-end recording facilities uh, in order to pursue their artistic vision in as authentic and appropriate way as possible by using a much cheaper and less expensively kitted out studio to record the Holy Bible at. However, as mix engineer Mark Freegard later stated in an interview with Steve Bateman for Repeat Fanzine, this recording was made on multi-track analogue tape, uh, as were most modern recordings of that time. And there were various analogue formats available. In this case, it was originally recorded on a one-inch analogue multi-track tape, This was considered more appropriate for demo and home recording because it was not as accurate in sound reproduction and probably a good deal noisier than professional formats of the day. The usual professional format was was a two-inch format. If set up correctly, the wider format facilitates higher fidelity and greater dynamic range. When I received the recording, it had already been transferred to a two-inch format so that I could mix it in some of the studios I used, usually used at the time for mixing. Um, so it ended up on two-inch tape anyway. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure the uh, audio quality of the tape, of what was recorded on the one-inch tape, was transferred, Yeah. you know, along with the, the sounds onto the two-inch tape. But I just wonder if, if in doing that, that that 
you know, might have in some way influenced how the final mix came out. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I think it's more about the, the, not the tone of it, as in like a guitar tone. I mean, just the feel of it, you yeah, know, like that. Yeah. So one-inch tape, two-inch tape kind of, I think there's like a deeper thing which is influencing the sound as well, isn't there? Which is probably influencing the sound more. But yeah. the fact they did record it using equipment like this obviously does play into how the, the UK or the original version sounded. Yeah, yeah. One of the other uh, willing sacrifices that the Manics made in choosing to record at Soundspace, aside from not having the highest quality recording equipment to use, was that of having any sense of significant amounts of natural reverb or room ambience on the record. Um, where in our last episode, um, Fleming Rasmussen uh, was able to create huge sounding drum sounds from Metallica at Sweet Silence uh, by recording them in its 45 by 60 foot warehouse space uh, with a plethora of ambient room mics. Um, Alex Silver had exactly the opposite situation to work with. Um, Hence the often quite dry sounding drums on the Holy Bible. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a Europe record, does it? No. <laughs> it doesn't like Def Leppard. No, it doesn't. I mean, you know, there's. we'll get on to the US mix. There's slightly more reverb and ambience on the drums on the US mix. But the UK mix, Mark's Freeguard, Freeguard's mix of the Holy Bible is quite dry mm. uh, in terms of um, the drums. Um, it's not got a big 80s snare reverb on it has it no so um silver said of uh, his experience uh, recording with the manics i remember the first day of making the record quite vividly because obviously like all sessions it was a technical setting up day doing lots of sound checking sound space studios is a very small space so to get the kind of sound separation you need takes a lot of work i remember sound checking the drums with sean for hours and he was getting pretty bored having to hit snare drums and bass drums so microphone separation. We'll talk. We'll talk briefly about this because it, it, you know, what Alex Silver says in that quote: mic separation impacts so much on the quality of a recording. What does that mean, mic separation? Well, microphone separation is the practice. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Hmm? Um, microphone separation is the practice of positioning a microphone so it picks up as much of the sound source you want to record as possible while rejecting as much of other sound sources around it as possible. Unwanted sound that goes into a microphone is known as bleed. Um, so using a drum kit as an example, uh, a standard practice when recording a drum kit is to place a microphone on each indi individual drum, in addition to the hi-hats and a stereo pair of overheads, which in the case of a five-piece kit would total a minimum of eight microphones. I want you to imagine... I'm imagining. Imagine it. You're a drummer playing the drums and you're hitting multiple sound sources of varying timbre and frequency, attack and duration in a small space with eight microphones pointed at the drum kit. Aren't they all going to pick everything up? Yeah. Uh, one thing is inevitable, and that is that every one of those eight microphones, to a greater or lesser, lesser degree, will be picking up unwanted sound or bleed. The problem with bleed, and the reason that it's undesirable, is that it creates an unnatural sound due to what is called coloration which occurs when a microphone picks up off-axis sounds, or sounds that come from a source other than the one each mic is pointing directly at. In a smaller space, this can be even more problematic uh, because you're limited in where you can place the mics, especially if some distance is required to achieve the sound that you want, for example, with overheads. Another issue with, small, with a small space uh, is that the sound reflects back off the walls quicker 
And instead of dissipating into space, it creates a whole myriad of issues, not just with bleed, but with what's called phase also. Um, phase is where two microphones essentially receive the same sound wave at different points in the wave cycle. So if the, if the waves are 180 degrees out, it will cancel the signal out, mm. and make it sound really thin and less powerful. So they're the two main issues that Silver was dealing with probably on that first day. Reducing the amount of bleed that's going into each mic and dealing with phase issues. I know, but that's his job, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. It's it like, is. you know, I've got all these strings on this guitar and I don't know what I'm going to do with them. It's like, it's his job, <laughs> isn't it? Well, it is, it is his job. Um, and he did do a superb job, I think. He could have made his job a lot easier. Or they, the Manics could have made his job a lot easier if they'd chosen a different studio. I mm. think the fact that the, the, the drum room was obviously so small does create a lot of yeah. a lot of problems. It um, sounds like the kind of place where bands would record demos, not, you know, an album yeah. that's going to go out on a major label globally. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. The lack of physical space at Soundspace Studios not only had a big impact upon the sound of the Holy Bible, but also dictated the recording process. Um, Alex Silver goes on to say, The first thing to do really, especially depending on the environment you're in, and because Soundspace was so small, the thing that we needed to do was get all the drum takes down. So generally, we got the drums and bass and a guide guitar for every song. And then once they were definite with drums and bass, we would move on and work on, to the, on the guitars which I guess took the biggest chunk of time. Yeah. So, you know, for all 13 tracks, the first thing they did was the drums and the bass, which they then used as like a bed yeah. to build the rest of the album uh, upon, or a foundation to build the rest of the album upon. I think it's fair to say that Alex Silver had his work cut out, um, and it's testament to his talents and abilities uh, that he achieved what he did in such a challenging space. He's not very good at replying to emails, though, is he? No, he isn't, no. No, I don't hold it against him, though. He's probably very busy. <laughs> and uh, we currently are a new podcast with zero <laughs> listeners except us. Yeah, this um, is true. So he's got, he's, he's, we've got no leverage, really. I won't forget it, though. No, I won't either. When, he, when he's emailing us <laughs> saying, please, please, can I come on? Yeah. I'll be like, no. Yeah, well. forget it. You know, I, I actually like that the drums on this album are quite dry. Yeah. Um, it sounds I, really narrow doesn't it yeah you know yeah. like some some albums feel like they fill the room you yeah. know like it's coming at you from all angles whereas this sounds like it's just directly in front of you yeah and it's just yeah. kind of yeah that's how that's the best way i can that using words to describe sounds really difficult in it but that's yeah. that's the best way that i can describe it yeah it's coming out your head on and it's boring straight into your brain yeah you know the reason they sound like they do uh is that they're recorded in a room without much in the way of ambience yeah um, and I have to say, hats off to Mike Freegard for not piling on loads of artificial re reverb in the mixing mm. stage, because um, I think it would it would have removed quite a lot of the character of the album. Yeah. I think if he'd have done that. Um, Alex Silver says of Mike Freegard, um, Mark did a great job mixing it, and I think he kept it quite natural. He brought out the right emotions for each song. Um, I'm pretty sure that the band worked closely with Mark on the mixing. But I think he maximised what was happening in the studio, really. There was no kind of big production values happening uh, after they were finished in the studio. Everything we recorded was used in the final mixes. I can't remember anything being replaced or replayed after that. So, Freeguard's mix isn't the only one mm. of the Holy Bible that's out there. Um, Tom Lord Algy um, 
mixed the album for its US release. And what do you think of that? I like it. What's the difference, like, for people who maybe don't have not heard it? Because I didn't even know it existed. And it's only on that 20th anniversary anniversary rock set, which tend to be... You know, I'm not. I, I don't rebuy albums to get all the extra stuff when they're reissued. So I didn't even know it was it was in existence at first. You put it on, and it feels really odd. Yeah, the story behind it is that the record company, basically in America, felt that the original mix wasn't going to get college radio right. airplay. Right. Um, so they handed the the multi track tapes to Tom Lord Algy to try and give them a bit more of an FM. Mm radio kind of sound which oddly enough is exactly what happened with albums like Nevermind yeah uh, where Butch Vig's original mixes weren't considered to be yeah big enough it sounds it's you know if they they had have gone to Barbados to yeah. record it yeah it sounds like that yeah I mean I think what Tom Lord Algie has, has, has attempted to do is bring more space yeah into it and make it a little less claustrophobic sounding mm. Um, a little less like you know make make the mix sort of spread out a bit and increase the stereo field and maybe add a bit of reverb to the kit to add a bit of depth and and I think it's done a good job uh, you know I if he was given a brief to can you do this to it make it sound like this he's done it hasn't it yeah which yeah. is fine but it just it's not it's not like how it's not the way the album was meant to no. sound it's like as well you know where you see really old black and white photographs and they've been colourised. Yeah, it, yeah. It's like that. It's like, oh, right. Um, yeah. it's, it's not quite right, it, but... Yeah. It looks all right, but it's it's not quite how it was intended or what the original version of it was. James Dean Bradfield is actually on record as saying that the band actually really liked the US mixers. And he said it was one of the few things that the US mm. record label did that they actually approved of. Right, OK. Um you know, Alex Silver had a really uphill battle recording it at Soundspace and getting it to sound as good as he as he did. Mm. And by extension, anyone that's mixing the album after that has got an uphill battle yeah. making it sound commercial. There's some little differences in the you songs, know. though, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Some think- are longer than others, and they've got intros and outros that... Yeah, Change. I mean, like the beginning of She's Suffering is a bit longer. Yeah, the, the, the end of uh, Yes is longer. Right. They bury the quote at the beginning of Four Stone, Seven Pounds. Right. So, like, the, the little quote that's at the beginning, that's way down in the mix. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a few little bits that crop up and you're like, because it's interesting you said that everything we recorded was used in the final mixes. Um, but it does seem like there's a couple of little extra things that were that are not on the original versions. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't listen to that version. You know, I've listened to it throughout curiosity, but I prefer the uh, original one. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Alex Silver said uh, the UK version was the first one, and that's kind of what you get used to, which I would mm. agree with. Yeah. Um, also, that album feels like it's something that comes straight from their mouths and from their hearts, and like you say, the rawness of the UK version suits the lyrical feeling more. I think, and I would agree with that as well. Yeah. Where commercial concerns um, are brought into it, and uh, you know the American record label obviously have commercial concerns. Mm. Um, you know they they are. I, I would argue that they are going more for style over substance. Yeah. 
Um, it's interesting more than anything else, isn't it, to listen to it and see yeah. an alternative way of it being mixed and how yeah. different it could sound. But I think it's a case of square peg round hole. Yeah. Uh, it's missing the point of the source material, yeah. I think. that I think benefited from recording in such a small space are the guitars um, recording in the confines of a small room with short reflections uh, gives the guitars a really direct sound I think you know uh, which when combined with Bradfield's guitar effects often makes for a super edgy metallic tone that feels like it's right in your face uh, you know I, I, I really like the directness of it and the, the edginess of it really suits the, the lyrical themes and the and the you know, the music. In the last episode, we spoke about James Hetfield being the master of uh, the double-tracked guitar, and it seems that James Ian Bradfield could give him a run for his money uh, in that department. Um, Alex Silver uh, recounted in his uh, interview with Repeat Fanzine, with James's guitar playing at the time, guitar solos were not really considered in anymore, Um, which I think is true. Mm. You know, Britpop sort of wasn't really all about that. Musical virtuosity, was it? No, no, it wasn't, no. Um, so James would do solos where we were recording straight to tape and we would drop in tiny fragments of the solos and then re-record and drop in again. Then he would double track it all. I think nearly every guitar on the album is double tracked. He would double track them to such an exactness that you can't even hear that sometimes there's two guitars. I was really surprised at that because I thought yeah. it was the opposite. I was yeah. thought there's minimal guitars on it or there's exactly as much as you would need to get the point across of what the song is. Yeah. And when I heard that uh, they were all double-tracked and um, and the extent to which they went to make sure they were double-tracked and they were so exact, that did surprise me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Because the thing about double-tracking is that if you are... It, it actually sounds bigger if you're slightly out. Yeah, and the whole point of this album you know. seemed to be to get the opposite across Yeah, for everything to sound... Sp- not smaller, but have a more direct, um, you know, direct sound to it. Yeah. And when you listen to some of the solos and some of the little incidental guitar melodies that he plays, then they're not easy lines to duplicate. No. You know, not that solo in fast as mental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Silver finishes by saying uh, that really was a labour of love to get it so perfectly doubled that you can't hear the difference, but it adds a big, bigger power to the sound. I think on the album, his guitar work is phenomenal, and I would agree entirely uh, with that. I'd be interested to hear a version of those songs where it's just a single guitar track, mm. because I, I, I think probably the album wouldn't have as much of an impact without that, you know, that double tracking. Um, even though it's hard to tell already... Yeah that it's double-tracked because it's so precise. I wonder if them US mixers kind of took advantage of there being two tracks, you know, yeah. to make it a bit and bigger sound. Spread it out, yeah. Bit, yeah. Um, I think it's true to say of any studio uh, that they shape the sound of an album uh, with the ambient qualities of their live rooms, which we discussed when we were talking about the Sound City drum room on the Pinkerton episode. Um, 
But I think this is doubly true of Sound Space Studios. Uh, and the reason is because of its limited size. Uh, in a large room, acoustics can be changed or captured differently by placing sound source in different parts of the room, placing mics in different parts of the room, or by placing baffles near the sound source in order to deaden the sound. With Sound Space Studios, I get the impression um, that it was so small with so few options in terms of capturing different room ambiences in the ways that I've just described, uh, that the Holy Bible could only have been recorded in the way that it was. Um, and in that sense, the Holy Bible, acoustically speaking, is not so much shaped by the environment it was recorded in as it is held hostage by it. Oh, Phil, that's beautiful. Thanks. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. But, you know... Yeah, you're right. When you're limited to that extent, you've just got to, like, grab hold and just... Mm. Go with it, haven't you? Silver states that working on the Holy Bible seven days a week for the whole duration of the uh, recording in early 94 cost him his social life and his girlfriend. I'm not surprised. Yeah, so intense and focused was the collective work ethic. At the end of making the Holy Bible, James, Nicky, Richie and Sean bought Alex a bottle of champagne, among other gifts, as a thank you for all of his hard work. However, when he arrived home that day, his long-term partner announced that she was leaving him as he'd spent so little time with her, um, with Alex jesting that the Mannix left him with a bottle of champagne and a broken heart. <laughs> Upon completion, as mentioned earlier, um, the one-inch 16-track tapes were transferred to two-inch tape and sent for mixing by Mike Freeguard at Britannia Row Studios in London. Says Freeguard of the process, they would brief me about a song I was about to mix. Perhaps some talk of what elements they considered important to a song and some idea of the kind of atmosphere that they were after. I'd get on with the mix on my own initially, to a point where I'd think it's working pretty well. I might do take one and have a listen back in a different environment and then make some revisions, make a take two or whatever. Then I'd ask them to come in for a listen and they'd respond after having a good listen. Um, they were very relaxed and very clear. It was really just James and Sean coming in and working with me. I remember seeing Richie and Nicky, but from recollection, it was really James and Sean calling the shots. They were very kind and gentle, no histrionics. They'd have said things like, ooh, could you just turn up the hi-hat a wee bit? Mike Freegard is Scottish, by the way. All right. So I'm not going to do another... Ooh, could you just turn up the hi-hat? No, it's terrible. I, I think he does talk like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, can we get a wee bit more weight on the snare drum? Or could we try the guitars a bit brighter? Stuff like that. But from what I can remember, it was quite straightforward. I had a brief listen to some of the album just before you called, and I noticed there's some heavily affected mixes. There's flanging and other psychedelic stuff going on. I love that word. Yeah, it's a good word. So there must have been uh, some discussion around that sort of stuff. But really, from a mixed point of view, I remember it being stress-free and it coming together without too much fuss. I think when you read about the... Ha how it was recorded um you know the state of the mind the band were in apart from obviously you know his girlfriend leaving him they say that it wasn't a particularly miserable time they no. weren't they weren't recording it you know when they were all in the pits of despair and that's what comes out on the album i think nicky wire just got married i think richie apparently was in a good place as well and yeah. so it would it would have fed into it nicely wouldn't it that they're all in a really really dark place emotionally but i don't think that was the case really they've, i think they've said it was quite a happy harmonious time for them yeah 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 I, and i think um you know when you when you're knuckling down onto a project that you believe in um and you're focused on creating what 
I believe is their masterwork. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you are in your happy place, aren't you? Because you're doing what you love. Yeah. You know, especially if they were doing it with minimal intervention as well. Yeah, can you imagine if they'd have gone out to Barbados and then they'd have had maybe execs flying over for updates and yeah, I can't imagine that would have been you know we wouldn't have been the same album, would it? So no, um, absolutely not. So the spoken word samples, um, Freeguard says about them. Uh, Manic Street Preachers had a very clear idea of what went where. At the time, I carried a little suitcase full of various crackly speakers and cheap electronic circuits, and I think I processed some of that stuff through these uh, as we dropped it into the recording. And when it came to the US mix of the album, he had this to say. I have to say I was a bit disappointed that it went on to be remixed for the American market. Perhaps there was some insecurity around the low fineness of it. Radio pluggers probably telling the label it wouldn't get any radio play unless it sounded bigger mm. and more American rock or something, perhaps. Um, and finally, um, Freeguard can possibly shed some light on the mastering mystery um, also. Um, when he says, in terms of mastering, uh, with the UK version, I'm pretty sure this would have been Tim Young or Ian Cooper at Townhouse, maybe Metropolis if it existed in 1994. The US version probably went to Masterdisc and Howie Weinberg in New York. Um, I can't actually remember attending the mastering session. I guess James and Sean took that upon themselves. What is mastering for those people who don't know? What it does is it removes any unwanted coloration from the mix in the EQ. And then by compressing it and limiting it, it takes care of the dynamic range. Right. Um, and it's, it's a really, when it's done right, it's a really, really subtle effect. Um, a really extreme example of it would be if you you know if you listen to a song on the radio on FM radio that's gone through an FM limiter, you can hear almost like the the, the music being clamped down yeah. upon. That's a really really extreme mm-hmm. kind of version of limiting. Like no dynamics from one yeah. part of the song to the next. Yeah, yeah. Even if you're going from a quiet verse to a loud chorus, you have this kind of a, a consistent volume. Because it feels like it's been squashed. Yes, yeah. I understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that is the recording and mixing of the Holy Bible. Is it still there, the studio? Can we do a pilgrimage? Or I bet they've knocked it down, haven't they? It, it got knocked down, I think. It got demolished. Um, Bastards. Yeah. <laughs> There's no sense of history. <laughs> no. No sense of history. It's really hard to find anything on uh, Soundspace Studios online. Right. Um, and I've trawled local music forums. And it's, it's like around the time the internet was coming in wasn't it so there wouldn't have been too much put on about it you know like yeah. because by the time that our usual places to look for stuff were invented it would probably gone by then hadn't it yeah yeah absolutely. and it's not even like a, a massive significant historic recording studio is it i, I i've trolled online i've i've found out little bits and bats of of where ownership was passed on to after the original owner mm. sold it on um but really, really hard to find anything. I was, I was hoping to find some photographs of the studio space and just drew a blank. Obviously, local bands going in to record a demo. Yeah. Without having a camera on their phone or indeed having a mobile phone at all, yeah. they're not going to take like a Kodak Instamatic into a recording studio to take pictures, are they? <laughs> Should we uh, have a chinwag about the uh, the gear that they used? Yep. Okie dokie. So this is mainly taken from Alex Silver's recollections 
the equipment that they used. Um, so James Dean Bradfield, according to Silver, mainly used his uh, white Gibson Les Paul Custom. I think uh, he's had that on every album, hasn't he? There's a YouTube video in there where he's breaking down a few of his songs and he's, yeah. he's appeared on every single one. Hence, it's uh, the moniker of Faithful, which oh. is given to it. Um, from uh, guitar.com. For the Holy Bible sessions, Bradfield minimised the number of guitars and stuck largely to his trusty white Gibson Les Paul, a staple instrument that he purchased from uh, a Denmark Street guitar shop back in the early 90s. Have, so you, ever, that, have you ever been there, Denmark Street? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There used to be a job centre at the end of it. Right. So like, you'd have like all these guitar <laughs> shops and then a job centre at the end. <laughs> For all the uh, <laughs> yeah. musos to go yeah. and uh, sign on. Uh, it goes on to say, it's a guitar that has appeared in some form on every Manic Street Preacher's record. It is my most valuable six-stringed friend. He lovingly expressed a guitarist in 2014. I find it hard to believe that James Dean Bradfield lovingly expressed mm. anything about his guitar. Not that he's not a loving person, I'm sure he is. Mm. But to do it in a magazine interview, like it makes it sound like he's cuddling the guitar, it does. doesn't it? Like, oh, yeah. my <laughs> A little friend. Yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, Bradfield also used a buttercream Fender Jazzmaster for a handful of other songs, uh, including the tonal switch of a glistening open G forged This Is Yesterday. What does that sentence mean? That sounds like somebody who doesn't play guitar writing about a guitar, doesn't it? Yeah. Even yeah. though it's in guitar on guitar.com. Yeah, yeah. So basically, he used a Fender Jazzmaster on This Is Yesterday. Yeah, in an open G tuning. In an open G yeah. tuning, yeah. Alex Silver says the guitars were mainly played through an old Marshall amp with 412 speakers. Um, the amp in question could be a JCM 900, which James Dean Bradfield uh, is a long-time user and fan of, which he places at number two in his top ten guitar amps list uh, on the Manic Street Preacher's official website. The JCM 900 is well known for its high gain and its tonal characteristics uh, that could be described as edgy, fizzy and synthetic, which, to be fair, describes many of the guitar sounds on the Holy Bible, mm. um, which I think makes the JCM 900 possibly the ideal amp uh, for this record. However, Silver's use of the word old suggests that uh, the Marshall amp is referring to predates 1990, uh, when the JC, JCM 900 was first produced, uh, which would make it still quite a new model in 1994. Mm. So which other Marshall could it be? Well, elsewhere on James Dean Bradfield's list, uh, there appears at number eight a Marshall JMP Superlead, uh, which definitely predates 1990 by some margin. So this old, in inverted commas, uh, Marshall amp could also be a contender. Silver also says, uh, also used was my Rickenbacker 75-watt combo with 2x12 speakers. Um, this is an interesting one because Rickenbacker are massively well-known mm. uh, for the guitar amps. Uh, the model in question could well be their TR75 model, uh, on which details are a bit thin on the ground on the old interweb. Um, but it appears that it was a twin-channel solid-state amp produced in the late 70s. Interestingly, it was specifically designed to be used uh, with Rickenbacker guitars that had a stereo output. Stereo left and stereo right? <laughs> stereo left and stereo right. That's all we need. Uh, Silver also says, uh, I think also a Soldano amp uh, through, Mar through the Marshall speakers. Um, I don't know too much about Soldano. Soldano are probably one of the first boutique right, okay. amp builders. 
1994, the Soldano amp in question could have been one of four models. It could have been the SLO 100, uh, which was the flagship and probably still is Soldano's flagship amp, uh, the Hot Rod 50 or the Hot Rod 100, uh, or the Reverbersonic, although the Reverbersonic was only available in combo uh, format. Um, so it's, it's one of three. It's either the SLO 100, the Hot Rod 50, or the Hot Rod 100. Um, I don't know, is the short answer. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say the Hot Rod 50. Boom. Mm. There you go. Never had a Hot Rod. Uh, <laughs> uh, go on. Moving Sorry. on. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, uh, the old studio staple Fender Twin Reverb was used a couple of times. Nice. Yeah, probably for the clean yeah. sounds, I would imagine. So, uh, mics used for the guitars. Really, really, really bog standard. SM57 and a Sennheiser MD421. Really bog standard microphones. Also, not listed by uh, Alex Silver, but according to guitar.com, James used both a Marshall amp through a 4x12, which we already know, as well as a Vox AC30 throughout the recording. Uh, with the occasional use of a Soldano amp. So you can add Vox AC30 to that list, mm. which James Dean Bradfield is uh, uh, a well-known user of. In terms of effects, Alex Silver said to Steve Bateman uh, at repeatfanzine.co.uk, we had a very, very limited set of effects, and I think all the effects on the whole album came from a Zoom micro pocket guitar processor. Um, which is like a, a tiny guitar processor that fits on a guitar strap. Mm, I remember them. You don't see too many of those now, do you? No, you don't. They didn't catch on. I, I can kind of see why they didn't catch on. You know, they go on a guitar strap, they're a bit fiddly, they're a bit hard yeah. to, to adjust settings while you're mm. actually playing. Uh, if you're just doing some recording and you you don't need to change anything mid-song, then they probably produce some some decent sounds um but if you're on the stage yeah you don't want to stop practical yeah yeah totally impractical um the unit in question would be a zoom uh 9002 pro which is actually quite a nifty little unit um looking at the manual that i was able to download from the zoom website it does pack in a lot of features in a, in such a small package which was as alex silver points out designed to fit onto a guitar strap which I think is pretty unique for the time. Mm. Uh, contemporaries of the 9002 Pro multi-effects pedal-wise are mainly larger floor-mounted units, such as the Boss ME series, the Digitech RP series, and the Dodd Tech series. Without reading out the entire manual, in a nutshell, the 9002 Pro allowed the combining of six of any of the following effects. So to, you, you had compressor, distortion, EQ pitch shifter, phaser, flanger, your favourite effect, yep. chorus, two delays, two reverbs, and three special effects settings called step, cry, and metallic, hmm. which is quite interesting because we've been using that word metallic to we describe have, yeah. uh, guitar sounds uh, on this album. Uh, ten banks of user presets allowed for uh, user-generated patches to be stored. In addition to this, it had an onboard tuner and a metronome. Um, currently going for about 170 quid. Oh, don't, don't they make market. them anymore? No, they don't. Right, make discontinued. Them yeah. I'm gonna say I think technology's moved on a lot, and it all the floor ones are modelling amps, and just the, the amount of stuff you can get on just the floor ones now is yeah. incredible, isn't it? But when when you consider what else was about at the time, mm. really quite an advanced forward thinking piece of kit. Yeah. Other effects 
that uh, allegedly were used was a Boss FZ2 Hyperfuzz and a Boss CH1 Superchorus. The classic. Yeah. Pale blue classic one, one of them. Yeah, yeah. With I think it was the one with four knobs, the CH1. Right. right. From guitar.com, uh, pedals were also kept to a relative minimum, although an unmistakable Boss Hyperfuzz, rumoured to have actually been owned by Richie Edwards, uh, is regularly deployed. A CH1 Superchorus... Uh, with a super-fast oscillation, augments the sound of Faster's opening squeal and is used in more slowly oscillated form for the racing barrage of of walking abortions intro. Other effects uh, were achieved with rack-mounted units, such as the Marshall Time Modulator, which is a a unit that I am not at all familiar with. No, me neither. The Marshall Time Modulator. I've never heard of it until reading this. And I haven't researched it, so I don't know what it does. I'm just going to have a little look now. Have, have, a, have a quick gander and see we, if you can... Uh... The, Marshall, the Marshall Time Modulator, an analogue delay line-based musical effects device created by Stephen Sandclair that could be used to produce a variety of flanging and chorus effects. There you go. Nice. So on the vocals, uh, as... Mentioned earlier, um, Silver employed a Neumann U87. The vocal mic was recorded through a Focusrite mic pre and then compressed with a Summit audio compressor. Very good. So there you go. on to Nicky Wire Nicky Wire's basses yeah I think over the years he's used pretty much every bass you know all the classic ones around in the early days he used to have like a uh, is it a Thunderbird yeah Gibson Thunderbird yeah. the Firebird's the guitar yeah. version isn't it yeah he had a yeah. Thunderbird and a Rickenbacker 4001 I think it was a 4001 um, he used to get seen with those and the sound of the bass on this album lends itself towards being a Rickenbacker because they have that really distinctive kind of clanky, heavy um, sound and he hits, and he hits the strings really hard by the look of it as well or the sound of it with a pick and I think where he hits the strings makes a big difference as well because he has his bass so low he tends to play quite near the neck and that you get a more of a kind of wide open rattly sound with that especially because the strings tend to hit the fretboard when you play a bit further up there so i reckon he used either the 4001 or he might have used a fender precision as well because the live footage of him around that time shows him using a fender precision bass and yeah you can get a similar sound out of a precision bass i know they tend to be um associated with like motown and that kind of music yeah. but if you use a pick turn the turn turn the tone all the way up and play in the manner that he plays it, you can get a really, really aggressive sound out of them. So I'm not sure which one he is. The, in videos around the time and on Top of the Pops, he was using that Rickenbacker, but they look cool, the Rickenbackers. Yeah. You know, and they, when you're a band who were concerned about your image and style as well, yeah. you know, that might have played into it. The, for all the precision bass is a wonderful instrument, it's not the most exciting thing to look at. So yeah. maybe I, they were thinking of that. I think also... Um, both the Rickenbacker 4001 and the Fender Precision were used by Paul Simonon of the yep. of the Clash, yeah. who obviously were a massive influence on the Manics. Yeah. Um, so maybe that 
influenced his choice of, of, of bass guitar. I can imagine why he, he turned away from using Rickenbacker Live, though, because I used to have one, and they'd just tear your hands to bits. They've got lots of sharp edges on them. Um, I used to get, like, a, a blister on my wrist every time I played it live, uh, and they are notoriously awkward to set up. Yeah. If you ever, like, see guitar luthiers or techs talking about them on YouTube videos and in magazines and stuff, they just rip them to bits. And they are brilliant. They, they sound incredible and they look amazing, but the one I had, um, it you know, the bridge had a, like a mind of its own. It just yeah. used to move about of its own accord. Um, it never really played that well, the one that I had. So it's no kind of surprise that he's now moved towards kind of just Fender jazz basses. And I think he uses like an Italia one or something like yeah. that now as well. Yeah. But I reckon on this album, he's using a, a Rickenbacker or a Precision um, with a pick played really aggressively. Yeah. I mean, some of the bass tones on this album are absolutely amazing. Yeah. I love Nicky Wise bass playing and this album's got loads of good stuff on it as well. Yeah. Um, I, th I think if you if you are familiar with the sound of a Rickenbacker 4001, <laughs> I'm perfectly prepared to be proved wrong, but it's unmistakably a Rickenbacker on most of the album, I would say. The thing is... It's just got that that mm. force. It's a really, like, full-sounding, forceful... Yeah. You, you can know. get a precision to sound like that, though. Do you think um, it might have something to do with the string choice? Because a lot of mm. studio producers will use flat-wound strings on something like a precision. Would a Rickenbacker 4001 take flat wound strings as well as a Fender Precision? It probably would do. Yeah, maybe. I've not really thought about that. It's a Precision or a Rickenbacker, but it's, and it's got round wound strings on it, and he's hitting it really hard with the yeah. pick. And I think that amp-wise, it'll just be the SVT. Because yeah. whenever you see any concert footage, he's usually got SVT heads, two of those big 810 cabs, uh, usually has them kind of on the side with a Welsh flag over one of them. Um, and he's never really deviated from that from all the footage that I've watched from the early days right up until more recent times so and they're like the, your industry standards you yeah. know it's like like I think I've mentioned before in the last podcast the bass doesn't have to be a particularly sophisticated sound you know like I think um, and that does the job perfectly well yeah you know a lot of the sound of the bass comes from the actual bass guitar itself and you just want the amp to kind of be a good thing to project the sound of the actual bass guitar itself so yeah um if you look on any concert footage you know from i think they were introduced in the late 60s if you look at any concert footage of bands in the 70s onwards usually you'll see an ampeg on stage yeah at some point yeah well i i tried to drill down on the exact model of ampeg um that uh, why I would have used and and I've I've kind of come to an educated guess Go on, on it. Go on. I've gone from photos of them playing live at, at the time and also from the Ampeg catalog, their 1994 catalog, in which I was really surprised to find that there's like quite a few different variations of the SVT head. Oh, there's loads, um, yeah. Um there's I, like the old traditional ones with the valves in but which look like, you know, like 
the box, you know, like the, the same kind of casing enclosure as what you would have for the speaker. Yeah. Um, but they also do like the rack mounted ones as well. And there's all different variations. Now there's tons. Yeah. Well, in that catalogue, which sort of confirms what you can see in contempor- contemporaneous images of them playing live uh, and also other source material, uh, it's reasonably well documented that he uses uh, SVT2 Pro heads. Um, or has used them for many years. So I'm going to yeah. make an educated guess that it's the SVT2 Pro that he was using in the studio. Silver says the bass was always recorded through an Ampeg SVT right. with an 8x10 cab. He did DI the bass as well, but he mic'd the cab and he used an AKG202, um, which is quite a, a, a unique-looking microphone. It's nicknamed the Rocket for obvious reasons. So he, he used that to mic the cab as well. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hazard a guess that that was the setup an SVT two Pro and an eight eight ten cab. They are so heavy those cabs. I think they're like hundred and twenty pound yeah. each and really big and bulky. You need roadies if you've got one of them. Yeah. Um, so Sean Moore um, played some drums. He, he hit some stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that gag's that running gag's never going to get old. Um, Alex Silver helpfully says, possibly Yamaha drums. All right. Now I dug a bit deeper than that. Now Sean Moore used a five-piece Cherry Yamaha nine thousand kit, which apparently is a really nice right. drum kit, like really top quality gear. Um, and he used that that um, that kit on the first two Manic Street Preachers albums and associated tours, I'm pretty sure that this is the kit that he used on the Holy Bible as well. Because when it appeared at the 2017 UK drum show, in promoting the event, uh, they used a picture of the kit getting trashed at the group's final performance as a four-piece at the Astoria in London in December of 94. So you've got to, if you used it on previous albums and tours, you've got to assume that he's Mm. using that kit. Yep. Um, on the the Holy Bible. The Yamaha 9000 was, um, from what I can gather online, first produced in 1977 and was constructed with 100% six-ply American birch shells. Uh, At the time, maple was the wood of choice uh, for many drum manufacturers, but Yamaha chose birch uh, because it's what they used to build their pianos with. And they reasoned that its resonant qualities would also make it ideal for drums. Also, rather than coat the shells in plastic, Yamaha had them sprayed with several layers of lacquer using the same technique that they used on the pianos. Hence why they're so bloody expensive. Oh, right. So, yeah. There you go for all you drummers out there <laughs> telling you something that you probably already know. Um, symbols-wise, um, uh, Sean Moore used Zildjian symbols. He had four crashers, a ride, and his hats. Exact... M- Models of symbols, I couldn't find any. Oh, I, wondered, info. I wondered how you were going to end that sentence. Then. I couldn't. God. <laughs> I couldn't care less. No, I could. I could. I honestly could care less. I honestly could. I know. So microphones used on the kit again uh, from Alex Silver. Uh, the bass drum, an AKG D12, which is now a vintage uh, microphone, but a standard bass drum microphone. Um, he also used a Neumann U87 on the bass drum as well, so I'm assuming that he was doing uh, inside and outside kick drum mics. Snare drum, 
uh, SM57 and a Bayer M201. The Toms used SM57s and overheads AKG451 um, condenser mics. And that's really it for the kit. Um, Sean Moore, obviously, he also used, a, I think it was an Akai S1000 sampler oh, yeah. uh, to do all the samples. Mm. Um, but drum kit-wise, I'm pretty sure that's it. Mm. And Richie Edwards, although he didn't play... Ba- big pens. Well, a portable a portable Olivetti typewriter, mm. which he would apparently come into the studio, lay out on the couch... Yeah. With his typewriter and a bottle of Jack Daniels, and and party time. Yeah, type type his lyrics. Yeah, and it could be said that that portable typewriter was the most integral and important piece of kit in the entire studio. Shall we uh, have a have a chat about the uh, about the songs? It's what we're yeah. here for, isn't it? Really, it is. Yeah. So the the opening track, yes. The the first thing you hear on the album is that sleazy, <laughs> horrible, Does it make your skin creepy crawl? voice well, of I that pimp. What, I remember watching it that when it was on. It was. It's from a documentary called Hookers, Hustlers, Pimps and Their Johns. Yeah. And I can remember watching it. It was, um, you know, there were only four channels, weren't there? It's not like there was a, no. loads of stuff to be watching. So you kind of just had to put up with whatever was on. And uh, yeah, I can remember, and he was a very, very kind of yeah. sleazy, kind of this horrible person. Yeah. This one here for Dale. Ah. Yeah, it horrible was one of those, man. like, I remember watching it and there was some quite extreme stuff on it within it. And it's no surprise that they... they pulled that quote um out of the yeah. show to put um to sit alongside this song it really sets the tone for the album it does doesn't it i, I mean think. we'll probably mention this quite a lot but i'm absolutely amazed how he manages to make and form songs from the lyrical well the lyrics that yeah. he's kind of handed because the i don't know i just think it's it's incredible how he does it i know for this one um, on some some video that I've seen of him, he actually said to Richie Edwards, you know, how would you expect me to write music to this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a song about human depravity, yeah. isn't it, really? And the, the depths to which humanity can sink. But interweaved with it, like there is in a lot of these songs, there's like a, an autobiographical element to it as well, isn't there? Yeah. You know, stuff yeah. like I Hurt Myself to Get Pain Out and just all of these little things which... You know, like it might you might have a song like this which is like about depravity, but then you have a few lines where you just think, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah. <laughs> He's a boy, you want a girl, so chop off his cock, tie his hair in bunches, fuck him, call him Rita if you want. Yeah. I'm not convinced that that's anything that Rich Edwards has personally experienced no. by any stretch of the uh, imagination. But it is, you know, an exploration of humanity and it's, it, you know, the depths to, like I say, the depths it will plumb to... And it's got it's got the C word as the fourth word on the album, yes. which I think is quite an achievement, really. Yeah. The um, 
apart from that though it is actually a great song people always yeah. um you know people always focus on the lyrics for this album and that, that seems to be the only thing that people comment upon when they look at it retrospectively or they you know they speak about its impact and but yeah. to me musically it's just as great because it means nothing if you you can have all these great lyrics but if the songs are no good then the songs are no good are they yeah um yeah. so they need to it needs to stand as a um, a song as well and as a song it's really really it's just brilliant i mean i think it was the the they thought it was going to be a single but obviously the lyrical content kind of meant that it um it couldn't be or, or it was yeah it was potentially a single i think but then somebody probably just got cold feet and thought no we can't as a single you really, well, really can't I can't imagine it would have got much airplay <laughs> Radio 2 uh, yeah with uh, you know the C word being the fourth word of the whole thing but then again you know I, th- I think the way that James Dean Bradfield delivers the vocal um, even though it is fairly high up in the mix his pronunciation in his diction isn't clear enough for you to like pick up on some of the things oh, that he know. sings you know I think without the benefit of that lyric sheet I think you would struggle yeah. to make out the lyrics and I, I think part of that is because like the metre of the vocal yeah. is a bit unsettling like like the album itself really words get isolated from other words in the line mm. and it almost feels like certain words have been shoehorned in yeah. um, maybe to fit them all in not to waste any of the words an example of that would be um, in the lines, I don't know what I'm scared of or what I even enjoy. Dulling, get money, but nothing turns out like you want it to. That word dulling is almost like a, an afterthought. It doesn't sound uh, like the word dulling, how no, it's sung, does it? No. It's and, a weird word to have in a song anyway, isn't it? You know, like, yeah. It's not... Yeah, but, it, but it's obviously, you know, important to the lyric as a whole and the message that the song is, is uh, giving out. So, you know, it is almost sort of shoehorned in, like it's like it shouldn't be there, but it's as an afterthought has been has been slotted in. James Dean Bradfield all he does this to a greater or lesser degree throughout the album, but he stretches words out mm. to get get them to fit. So the line pity or pain, the or in between pity and pain is 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 elongated. Pity or pain to show displeasure's shame. So the the, the front part of displeasure, dis is again elongated to to make it sort of melodically mm. fit, and it and it feels unsettling because it's not he's singing these words in ways that you wouldn't yeah ordinarily expect them to be sung. You know, coupled with that though, running throughout the verses, you have the time signature, which is a little odd as well. You have like, right. it's, like it's either seven eight or it's about a four four, then a three four, and it so right. it feels like it jumps forwards. Right, quite a lot within it, so I think that's quite unsettling as yeah. well. There's an actual rhythm, um, sorry, yeah, the time signature yeah. within the song, so that makes it sound like it's dragging and jumping forward at the same time. So that you know that would explain the lengthening and yeah. shortening of words. So um, an example of, of, of shortening the, the lyric: uh, "There's no lust in this coma, even for a fifty. The word "even" is barely audible. Yeah, you know, it's it's hardly there. Um, don't hurt, just obey, lie down, do as they say. The word obey, again, like you can't, you, you wouldn't know that he's singing the word obey, mm. just the way that it's fitted into the to the whole thing. And again, pronunciation of words get warped to fit the metre and rhythm, rhythm of the line. Um, the line, which I think is fairly autobiographical on Rich Edwards' part, I eat and I dress and I wash 
and I still can say thank you. Puking, shaking, sinking. I still stand for old ladies. Yeah, that puking, shaking is a bit. It's, it sounds really odd, doesn't it? I didn't yeah. even realise that's what it was for a long time. Obviously, I read. Yeah. I did look at the lyrics when I first got it, but I didn't match up puking, shaking with where it comes in the song because I yeah. don't think I, I would never have sat there and listened to the song with the lyrics in front of me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I never would have matched them up like that. It's just. Um, yeah, but you're right. Shortening words down or elongating them to make them fit. But what else is he going to do? They're not really written out in a, you know, I don't know what the correct terminology is. It for something which has got a set number of syllables in each line yeah. and, you know, and moving a rhythm like that. So and maybe another um, consideration is that he has to play these songs live. I've heard him play live though. They don't, he, he veers off the melody. Right. He, he, I don't think I've ever heard him sing a Manic Street Preachers song like as it is on the album, which is fine. But also because he sings so high, yeah. I think sometimes it's, it's to kind yeah. of get through the gig. Yeah, he, yeah. He's got, yeah. I, I love his voice, but there are parts on this album where you just think, oh, I bet that took its toll life, yeah. you know, like yeah. night after night. Yeah. Well, you know. that um, Glastonbury 94 footage on YouTube is like fierce. Yeah. Like his delivery is yeah. ferocious, you yeah. know? And, and I can't imagine that, I, ima- I can imagine that they were doing maybe a 45 minute late afternoon, early mm. evening slot. But to do 90 minutes at that intensity yeah. it would be really hard. Because um, all of the songs are like that. You know, you yeah. listen to like songs off the first two albums, they're all way up there in the register, aren't they, at times? Yeah, um, yeah the chorus, have you heard of a song called Outdoor Minor? By I Wire? have, yes, yeah. It sounds a bit like that. Yeah, it's a similar yeah. rhythm, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. There's lots of things in like Wire... Public Image Limited and a few other like Joy Division. Yeah. Um, these I think these were things that they were listening to at the time, weren't they? Or James yeah. was listening to when he was putting all the music together and just little things pop up every so often, which yeah. remind me a lot of those bands. Another uh thing is is in the in the chorus is Nicky Wire pedaling on that low E. Yeah. He does that in other songs on the album as well, where the the, the, the chords are, you know is modulating through a chord sequence yeah and Nicky Wire's just holding that yeah because it's going up the neck note. isn't it yeah. in the background to that yeah. I think on James Dean Bradfield's doing but yeah. he stays on that so yeah you know um, a lot of work has gone into making the lyrics sit in the music um, so that it's first of all it's got to be melodic and memorable mm-hmm. you know yeah. people have got to latch on to it but also the lyric has to be served appropriately and the potency of the message has to be delivered to full effect um, and I think you know that's something that in this opening song James Dean Bradfield absolutely excels at these really good though they they tend to have and I'll probably revisit this as we go through them they have quite the verses tend to be really intense and then there's like a release when you get to a chorus yeah so, yeah. so for all the album's really dark in it's con it's lyrical content you know, there's loads of there's loads of hooks on it. Yeah. There's some really like catchy bits within it. Yeah. So it's you know he he does a good job at putting all of these things together and still making a good coherent song out of it that you would want to come back and listen to and not just think oh they're good lyrics when you read them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll just read a bit here from a website called two hundred and twenty seven layers dot com, uh, which is a reference to the quote at the end of PCP. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I and I'm, I don't I, I don't know the name of the person who runs this this website. Um, I'll have to find out and, and, and 
drop it in. Um, but anyway, they, they wrote, Yes is a song that not only depicts the unsettling realm of a prostitute. Um, according to the band, it was also intended to suggest a sense of exploitation uh, that they had come to feel in the music business. A familiar fear of selling out conveyed by such an extreme comparison. A logo designed by the band uh, that at the time mimicked a TSB bank advertisement was MSP, the band that likes to say yes. <laughs> um, bassist and lyricist Nicky Wire explained, basically, we've reached a point now where we feel as if we've prostituted ourselves so fucking support, much. Didn't they support Bon Jovi, like, in, on the Gold Against the Soul tour? Oh, I don't know. I'm pretty sure they, 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 did, they did a Bon Jovi support and then immediately after that, you know, you're going to the writing process for Holy Bible, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I can imagine why they might think we've prostituted ourselves a bit yeah, here when you've got yeah. the Jovi. And the know, Holy Bible yeah. is probably a reaction against <laughs> all that. Him. Um, That's what Yeah, he, yeah. We've got something to thank him for then. So basically, we've reached a point now where we feel like as if we've prostituted ourselves so fucking much, just given and given and given that we've given everything away. Mm. Everything must go. Um, and we've absolute, got absolutely fucking nothing left of our own. And we played up to that, you know. Culture sluts. But these things, these things catch up with you. There's a song on the album called Yes, which is about this. The feeling that you've just been completely used up. I mean, I remember dressing up as a sperm for some Italian fashion magazine. Do you know what I mean? That was our credo, say yes to everything. <laughs> Blimey. So, yeah, you'd look at yourself, wouldn't you, dressed as that, and you think, oh, we've got to exercise more control of what we're yeah, doing here. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I wonder if it was the same suit that Woody Allen wore in yeah. uh, everything you ever wanted to know. I mean, it's a great opener. It is. And I think it, to a certain extent, it lulls, lulls you into a false sense of security as to what's to come. Because it is still a great. Hmm. The Manic Street Preachers have always had great pop sensibilities. I know. And, and the singles, because when PCP came, um, Faster and PCP were like the singles, which were just before the album. And then you have that as the opening track on an album. There was nothing in those <laughs> yeah. three songs to prepare you for what was ahead. Yeah. You know, you think, oh, it's going to be all right, this. <laughs> yeah. 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 Shall we uh, take a listen to the next one? Yeah. So, um,. I entirely concur with Nicky Wire that this is possibly the greatest song title <laughs> yeah, in the world right. ever. Yep. Um, if white America told the truth for one day, its world would fall apart. I know. Many how many years on are we now? <coughs> 29 years on and it's still correct, probably more than ever. Yeah, many a true word spoken uh, in a song title. These are my favourite lyrics on the album. Right, Okay. As I just think there's there's like a really funny humour to them which they probably didn't intend on. Yeah. But I just find some of the bits in it really comical. It's it's almost satirical, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, I think it's when you get words like perfection, suntan and napalm together. You know, when you get stuff <laughs> like that, which is which I quite like. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just I, I just like it as a as as a concept for a song. Uh, and as a song as well, but the lyrics are my favourite on the album, I think. The um, the intro, every time I hear that intro, I do feel a bit sick. Which bit? The initial riff or when it breaks down into no, the, what singing over? The, the sample. Oh, right. You, oh, you mean yeah. the actual intro. Right, yeah. okay. <coughs> so, so the bit where 
It is expensive though, isn't it? Yeah, thousand dollars a plate. <laughs> yeah, but you can watch for free on oh. GOP TV. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody was at home going, "Oh yes, please." Yeah, I'd love to see that. It might be them families, you know, that have like gun portraits. Yeah, where they've all got yeah. guns. Yeah, and they're all sitting there for their Christmas cards. It might be them. Yeah, it's probably it's probably the person who um, followed me on Instagram earlier this week, and the f- um, the first two words of their bio was Trump supporter. Oh, right. And uh, <laughs> I thought, block, block. Yeah, I think GOP TV, from what I gather, is like a US Republican-controlled TV station or run TV station, you know, just for their own... S- state-sponsored telly. Yeah, basically, Pretty yeah. much. Yeah, so that's hence the enthusiasm about Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And oh, the irony. Lady Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, oh, God. You know, it is a song about hypocrisy, really, isn't it? Um, a critique of the American dream. Yeah. And freedom of speech, so on and so forth. There's a few few names mentioned in the lyrics. Go on, um, then. Which I, th- I think are worth uh, mentioning because they, they contextualise the whole thing. Cool, groovy, morning, fine. Tipper Gore was a friend of mine. Um, Tipper Gore uh, is uh, Mary Elizabeth... Tipper is a, a nickname. It's the most American like mm. nick, nickname, isn't it? Like Tipper. Well, it is, but you kind yeah. of don't bat an eyelid at some American names. No. You know, like yeah. Brick, when people call things like that. It's like, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. So, Tipper was born on uh, August 19th, 1948. And uh, oddly, um, she's an American social issues advocate... Mm. is how she's described, activist, photographer and author who was the second lady of the United States from 1993 to 2001. Mm. Um, she was married to Al Gore, yep. the 45th, 45th Vice President of the United States, uh, although they separated in 2010. Now, this is the interesting bit and the bit that I think people will uh, recognise Tipper Gore um, uh, in 1985, Gore co-founded the Parents Music Resource Centre. Mm, it's the, the cool stickers from the front of albums, isn't it? Yes, the PMRC, um, which advocated for the labelling of record covers and releases featuring profane language, especially in the heavy metal, punk and hip-hop genres of mm. music. Anything uh, we like, drugs, violence and murder. Yeah. You know, things like that. Yeah. But it ended, I think it backfired because I think yeah. bands just liked having that sticker on. Yeah. Kids just thought, oh, that's yeah. got, you know, that's probably going to have some kind of profanity on it. It's going to have some bit of swearing in it. It's, you know, they probably yeah. want. Yeah. I think I think it was Metallica, wasn't it, who put this yeah. album has yeah. 10 fucks. Yeah. Two cunts or whatever, you know, um, on it. So, yeah, throughout her decades in public life, she has advocated for placing advisory labels on music, which is just a huge case of, think of the children! Yeah. Isn't it, really? Mm, it you really know, is. It's, um, it's, it's kind of like a version of white knighting, isn't it? You know, protecting the innocent from... Yeah. The innocent from the world in which they live. According to an article by National Public Radio, Gore went before Congress to urge warning labels for records marketed to children... Now, I'm not sure that any heavy metal album or hip-hop album has ever been marketed towards children, specifically. I think um, she probably just... She's going by, you know, if you're, if you're in high school, then you're probably going to be listening to some of these albums because that's when your tastes kind of develop, isn't it? And you become part of a, 
a group of people who like listening to certain kinds of music. And if you're a metal fan, inevitably you're gonna, you know, be, you're gonna be exposed to some of these albums. I think Slayer albums had those stickers on the front. Yeah. So like they had a lot of serial killer themes to the songs, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, Dead skin mask and stuff. So yeah, I remember them having them on. This is a uh, something that's been going on since the birth of of popular music and rock and roll. You know, teens being subverted by mm. you know whatever message is behind um, you know the song. You know, when you think of it historically, what damage has popular music ever done to the establishment? You know, no, I would argue none, no damage at all. You know. Not even made a dent, and what the establishment does very well with Sir Mick Jagger and Sir Paul McCartney <laughs> is embrace these people and bring them into the fold. Right. You know. Um, I never really thought about it like that. And and you know, neuter the any possible danger that rock and roll uh, can present to the establishment uh, or threat to the establishment. Um, Gore explained that her purpose wasn't to put a gag on music, but to keep it safe for younger listeners, providing parents with information about the content of the songs. A number of individuals, uh, including Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister, uh, Jello Biafra of Dead Kennedys, John Denver. Oh, did it go to court? Was there some kind of court case? Just when he said Dee Snyder. <laughs> Dee Snyder. Uh, it says here, Dee Snyder was particularly antagonistic, um, accusing her of having a dirty mind for suggesting that his song, his band song, Under the Blade, contained sadomasochistic references when the song, in fact, referred to a medical surgery. All oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it could be argued that if uh, Twisted Sister wore suits and had side partings and were well presented that perhaps maybe uh, mm. her interpretation of that song might be uh, might be a bit different and a bit more favourable. But yeah, that's Tipagar, um enemy of free speech. <laughs> yeah. Think of do, the do children. They still have, do they still have them, those stickers? I don't know that they do. Apparently people I, don't really buy CDs anymore. No. Do they for them to go on? And, uh, and, and also, you know, you can go... Um, like you say, you can go online and download these songs without any... Yeah, it did backfire, you know, though, because I remember people having T-shirts on that had that, you yeah, know, that, that PMRC yeah. sticker on it, so it became almost like a badge of honour for your album cover. Yeah, and I'm, um, and I'm sure many bands... Just did it. Just so did they could it get one. so they could get a sticker, yeah. Make themselves look cool. Get a PMRC sticker on the front of your album. So who else is on it, then? Yeah. What other um, names are, uh, are dropped? The, the line, uh, Zapruder, the first to masturbate, which I think is an excellent lyric. Zapruder is a reference to Abraham Zapruder, who famously filmed JFK's assassination with his Super 8 camera. Yeah. Um, the film became a key piece of evidence uh, in the Warren Commission's investigation into what happened on What's... November 22nd, 1963, at Dealey Plaza in Dallas. So why are they saying he's the first to masturbate? Yeah, it's a strange one, that. The world's first taste of crucified grace... As we'll get into in the next little uh, little uh, name check, I think this song is is also has an element of gun control, mm. and you know how in America freedom of speech, freedom of expression, the right to bear arms, so on and so forth, isn't always a great thing. And I think that's probably why the Pruder is 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 name checked, mm. obviously with the assassination of of JFK. So he didn't invent. <laughs> 
He didn't invent it then, masturbation. Masturbation. He might have done. Right. I mean, he might have had a sideline in right. pioneering masturbation. He'd been quite influential if he did, hadn't he? Probably the most... <laughs> I mean, he, he deserves his own PMRC sticker, doesn't he? Absolutely. So, um, the lines, uh, fuck the Brady Bill, uh, yep. which um, come at the end, followed by the lines, if God made man, they say Sam Colt made an equal. The Brady Bill um, is is a reference to the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, right? Uh, which was enacted on November 30th, 1993. Uh, often referred to as the Brady Act or the Brady Bill, is an, it's an act of United States Congress that mandated federal background checks on firearm purchases uh, in the United States and imposed a five-day waiting period on purchases until the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, NICS, was implemented in 1998. Um, the intention of the Act was to prevent yeah. persons with previous serious convictions from purchasing firearms. Naturally, because this is a, a, a good, sensible idea <laughs> not to have potentially dangerous and violent individuals with previous convictions purchasing firearms, um, the National Rifle Association have spent a ton of money lobbying to defeat the bill over the years uh, since it was first proposed in 1987. Mm. Because, well, they're not going to make any money, are they? Musically, there's some interesting things going on with this one. Have you noticed a tempo change in the first sort of minute of the song? Where? Where do you think it does it? Um, you mean gradual? Or does yeah, it just gradual, speak? yeah. Like, so, midway through the first verse going into the second verse, to my ear, it yeah. gets faster. Right. And it, it speeds up. Um and tempo changes happen elsewhere on the album as well, which I'll talk about as we yeah, go along. Yeah, there are a few throughout it, aren't there? But yeah, I noticed that, just that little sort of injection of, of, of a bit extra pace and intensity. Mm. No click track then? Well, yeah, I mean... Unless you program a click track. Yeah, but I, I, I can't honestly see in that studio with that setup. Mm. I don't know if they'd have had Pro Tools in the studio of that... <laughs> Possibly not. Um, level. So, yeah, I would imagine that a programmable click track wasn't on the cards. When you said the intro makes you feel sick, yeah. the reason why I asked you about the music is because I think the music is quite um, off-putting as well. Like that yeah. initial riff is very odd. Yeah. Kind of how it rises and then the riff behind the, um, the singing in the verse because it's got that open G ringing out through it yeah. and it kind of brushes up against some of the other notes he's playing. So yeah. I think that gives it a bit of a an unsettling, sickly feel at times. Yeah, yeah. I think this one, um, now that you've said that, um, I think this one was proposed as a single. Was it? At one point, yeah. I think I think it was James Dean Bradfield said he wanted this one to be the single uh, initially. It's got... Um, um, it's got a hook again, yeah. hasn't it? You know, it's yeah. like it for all, like we've said before in the last song, because for all the lyrical content and how dense it is, um, it's still got a hook there. I yeah. think I read that they, they thought it was like a demented version of a West Side Story song. Yeah, I can get that. Mm. I can get with that. Yeah, definitely. I think his, um, his vocal delivery is, again, fierce on this. Yeah. You know, really committed. And also um, in the chorus, that, that bass guitar pedalling on that yeah. single note. As with as with yes, I like um, the I am here to serve the moral majority. How he sings it, I think it's the, yeah. When he yeah. kind of screams the last of it, um, stars and stripes and apple for mommy. That's one of my favourite lyrics on the album as well. Yeah, again, commenting <laughs> you know commentary on the American dream. And, yep. and all that. Yeah, uh, it's a great song. Even even if you know the intro does make me feel a bit nauseous. <laughs> Yeah. 
So to lift the mood a bit, the next one's called... <laughs> what's the next one? Of Walking Abortion. Oh, there we go. Um, which begins with an extract from an interview with Hubert Selby Jr., which again just, you know, doesn't, doesn't do much to lift the, uh, the mood. Um, I knew that one day, that someday I was going to die, and I knew that before I died, two things would happen to me. That number one, I would regret my entire life, and number two, I would want to live my life all over again. Mm. Now, the, there's a song called The Light Pours Out Me by Magazine. Right. And it resembles that at the beginning. Not so much in the actual notes, but in the feel of it. I'll have to have a, um, a listen to that as well. But yeah. So it's another example of kind of some of these influences which are all from a very specific genre influencing the music. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and just to add um, that Hubert Selby Jr. is an American author, uh, most well known for his novels Last Exit to Brooklyn and Requiem for a Dream which I haven't read either book, but I've seen the film Raccoon for a Dream and it's pretty, uh, pretty desperate. Pretty, de- pretty dark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it kind of, it kind of um, thematically fits uh, into this album uh, quite well. That's the first one that's really hard work, isn't it? You know, yeah. when you... I, I think it's one of the few songs that sort of reference the Holocaust. Because when they did the Gold Against the soul tour of germany on their days off mm. they visited concentration camps naturally yeah and i think this is one of those songs that sort of resulted yeah um from one of those visits yeah it's 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 quite intense it's, i think it's the first song that isn't doesn't have like a, a chorus that redeems yeah the rest of the song like the chorus <laughs> is just as bleak as the verse yeah. and it musically yeah. The, the verse has got sounds of metal in it. You know, like right. the actual, that like clanky noise, like the life is, and then the the, the kind of sound of effects. Yeah. Apparently yeah. it's from some Alex Silver. He had loads of collected sounds from like this theatre production he did years previous. Right. And he mixed them all together and processed them all. And it, it comes up, I think it's, there's one more song. Yeah, there's definitely one more uh, on here that uses it as well. So that is the sound of the Valley Steelworks Right. So right. As used as, um, you know, like almost percussion, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty cool. It is, isn't it? It's pretty cool. I like that. It's like that necessity, you know, like when you're working, you just work with what you've got. Yeah. And if you've got yeah. all these noises and you feel like they could add to a song, then, you know, if it fits, then put it on. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably why um, Silver got his uh, production yeah. credit um, for, you know, for moments like that where... Uh, I can contribute something here. Literally the sound of metal. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I don't have much to say on this song because I feel like it's just one of those where I do love it, but I'm not sure how to comment on it, you know, because it's it's so intense. It's really, like, angular. It's unusual, you know, like the guitar movement and the riffs in it are really unusual. Yeah. Um, I suppose the nearest to a hook in it is the gang vocal bit in the chorus yeah but um the chorus moves downwards doesn't it musically chromatically it moves downwards which is not something which which not something which is generally uplifting is it no no i was (laughs) and and you know that was something that i sort of noted um one of the uh, unwritten rules of of songwriting is chromatically descending chord sequences aren't generally. Yeah. Um, You're not com- going to get a dance floor filler out of it, are you? No, no, and and it, you know nobody wants to have the sensation of being pulled down unless you write in the Holy Bible, uh, in which case 
you know, it fits perfectly, um, which is, I think, why they get away with it. Mm. Um, because, you know, in terms of the, the, the feel and aesthetic of the rest of the, the album, mm. um, I think it absolutely, that chromatically descending chord sequence absolutely fits. Um, and, and also, you know, they're notoriously hard to get a decent vocal melody over. Mm. And somehow, James Dean Bradfield has managed to get what I think is probably the closest to a sing-along chorus that you could ever get over that chord sequence. Yeah. It's used a lot in metal, isn't it? Like heavy metal, yeah. like chromatic movement, but less so in songs where you're trying to get a hook out of it or you're trying to make something that's melodic. Yeah, yeah. But he does a, he does a good job of it. Yeah, and, and also... Um, the outro is like an add-on to the song, like a like a coda to the song. It's not mm. repeated anywhere else in the song, and this happens uh, on other songs on mm. this album as well, uh, which is quite an interesting um, little uh, compositional tool because it, you know, in this particular instance, it does serve a purpose, and what it does is underscore um, the theme behind, you know, the, the the song as a whole. So where he's singing, who's responsible, you fucking are, you know, that's a moment of, of, of self-reflection, you know, when you take into, and I'll go into a bit of the context of the rest of the song in, in a second, but, that, but, but those lines absolutely lay responsibility at your feet mm. for, you know, events like the Holocaust um, that have happened in human history. And that outro just achieves that perfectly, I think. And the last line is, according to Alex Silver, uh, James Dean Bradfield shouting through the pickups of his guitar. Mm. Imagine um, the volume he must have had to kind yeah. of, or the yeah, the oomph he must have had to give it to, yeah, to give it to come like that. I have read that he was shouting through the pickups. I had it placed in a different area of the album, and I think it makes more sense that it's um, that part there. Yeah. So yeah. So um, from uh, antiwarsongs.org and uh, Wikipedia. Uh, this is from antiwarsongs.org. Um, a song about totalitarianism and how paradoxically it always feeds on the support of the masses. So that's their interpretation of, of, of what this song is about. There's a line, Hothi's corpse screamed to a million. Um, Hothi was a Hungarian fascist military dictator uh, before the Second World War. And the devotion that a fascist dictator can achieve just shows such a terrible flaw in human nature. This is a quote from uh, Nicky Wire. Uh, in an interview that he gave a couple of days before the album came out in 1994. There's always a chance that it'll be revived because there's a worm in human nature that makes us want to be dominated, which is a really interesting idea. <laughs> it's about as dark as it gets, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Are and they trying to interpret it as these leaders needed the support of the people who they were kind of um, had this power over and, and it was gladly given, or are they recognising the fact that People always like to think, you know, well, if, if I lived in Nazi Germany, I wouldn't have been a part of that. But the fact is, you probably would have, yeah. because you would have, you would have had to go along with it. Yeah, because people are sheeple, aren't they? I, you know, it, I know, but that makes it sound like people are doing it because they want to, rather than people are doing it because they live in fear of reacting against it. Um, I think it's a combination, right, of of both those things. Yeah. Um, you know, I think um, when you actually look at dictatorships, the actual balance of power is on a knife edge at all times. Yeah. Um, you know, they have to bring all their tools of oppression and control to bear in order to maintain 
their position of power, which is kind of you know what this what this song is is commenting on. In the second verse, several twentieth century fascist dictators are referenced. Also, um, we all know about Hitler and Mussolini, but Hawthorne and Tisu we we know less about in the UK at least. Uh, I would imagine. So Nicholas Hawthorne, as, as mentioned, was a Hungarian admiral and statesman who served uh, as the regent to the Kingdom of Hungary between two world wars and throughout most of World War II, um, which was from 1st of March 1920 to the 15th of October 1944. Um, ideologically, he was a national conservative. He's sometimes been labelled a fascist, uh, which I think is probably accurate. Um, some historians have viewed Hawthorne as unenthusiastic in contributing to the German war effort and the Holocaust in Hungary, mainly out of fear that it might sabotage peace deals with Allied forces at the end of the war. Um, however, uh, prior to the 1944 Nazi occupation of Hungary, 63,000 Jews were killed, and in late 1944, nearly half a million Jews were deported to Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, where the majority were gassed on arrival. Hawthorne then, he, he was um, exiled, and lived in Portugal in exile for the rest of his life. And he died um, in 57, 1950, 9th of February 1957 he died. But in 1993, 36 years after his death, Hawthorne's body was returned from Portugal, where he'd lived out his life in exile, to his hometown of Candeiras. Tens of thousands of people, as well as almost the entirety of Joseph Antal's MDF cabinet, who, that's the Hungarian Democratic Forum, um, they were in, in government at the time, uh, and they all attended the ceremony. Right. So uh, the reburial was broadcast on state te- television and was accompanied by large-scale protests in Bu- Budapest. Right. So hence the thing about it being screened to a million. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's that sense of the dictators instilling a population, that sense of loyalty and, and devotion, you know, to the point where... Even having, you know, sent half a million Jews to their deaths during World War Two, and being exiled to Portugal shortly afterwards, even all those years after, he can still be repatriated mm. and reinterred in his home nation and it be Just watched. a general feeling of, well, it were a long time ago yeah, about Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. He didn't yeah. mean it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I think, you know, for, for Rich Edwards to pick that, Example shows an incredible level of knowledge, yeah, of of of, of his history and world events, especially and, as it's just one line in a song. Yeah, yeah. You could get you know more material out of that, couldn't you? You would oh, have thought absolutely. you could kind of it could be woven into a, a whole song, but yeah, um, just just something as rich in in detail as that, just to kind of have it as a screen into a million. Yeah. Teaser is probably the least known of the dictators indicated in, in that uh, verse. He was actually a, a Slovakian Catholic priest um, and founder of the People's Party, who between 1939 and 1945 made Slovakia a satellite state of the Nazi regime. Uh, in 1942, the government, led by Teaser, approved the deportation of Slovak Jews requested by Hitler. Uh, before deportation stopped, apparently due to direct intervention by the Vatican, 75% of the members of the Jewish community in Slovakia were transferred to concentration camps and very few of them returned. After the war, Tizu was arrested, tried and hanged in Bratislava in 1947. Again, you mm-hmm. know, a, a, an obscure dictator who ruled for a relatively short period of time. Brought back in these lyrics to, to make a very specific point. It's, it's 
just all inspiring really richard james had had, had um, commented on this in the holy bible tour book so some of this is is slightly sort of chopped up um, and stuck together but um, there is little hope east european truths um, i think these are all notes that richie edwards made in his notebook yeah they sound like, like lyrics snippets. don't they they do yeah. <laughs> they could have made their way onto a um, a manic song yeah absolutely um, there is little hope East European truths Hawthy plus Tisu anti-Semitic slash fascist revived and brought back home facts ignored caveat moral certainty there should we have been born still born walk, walking sideways unable to make a decision of any consequence modern life makes thought an embarrassment your true reflection equals junksi- junkies winos whores Who's responsible? Mm. That walking sideways comes up as a lyric later in the album as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Or kind of a, a, a form of kind of that movement. Modern life makes thought an embarrassment. That's an interesting idea. One of the key words that I had to look up because I didn't know what it meant. Recognised truth, acedia's blackest hole. And I had to work. I had to look up what acedia means, and it's from the Latin. Um, and it's been variously defined as a state of listlessness or torpor, of not caring or not being concerned with one's position or condition in the world. Like one word in, <laughs> in, out of all of them just perfectly sums I know. up I know. what the song is about and what it's commenting. That kind of insight, that kind of um, economy is just mind-blowing. Just to, I don't want to bang on about this like for, for too long, um, but use of the word shalom in the chorus, shalom, shalom, we all love our children, intrigued me. Um, shalom is a is a Hebrew word is meaning... A greeting, is it a greeting? Yeah, or? yeah, it's used as a greeting. It, it means uh, peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, right. welfare and tranquility. So there's a lot wrapped up in that one word and can be used idiomatically to mean both hello and goodbye. There's a sense that... The use of the word is, is ironic um, in reference to the Holocaust, followed by the line, we all love our children, um, to perhaps illustrate how humans can at once claim to be uh, decent individuals yet stand back and allow genocidal mm. atrocities to happen. It's another case of, of think of the children, um, <laughs> but in, in a different way. Yeah, I think this is, this is the first song that, that really showcases Richie Edwards' um, ability to dissect an issue and present it in a way that has got multiple levels mm. um, and you can either approach it on the surface level or you can really take a deep dive and, and investigate the things that he's writing about yeah and get a fuller mean a fuller sense of the meaning of, of, of the lyric as a whole you know it's, it is all inspiring I still think there'll have been a lot of this will have bypassed a lot of people because the means to research all of this was probably less available, you know, in 1994, whereas now we can take a lyric and we can just pick out all these names and different words and stuff. Yeah. And you can you can see these deeper meanings. The fact that people just really took to what he was writing about and saw saw the depth of it yeah. in the absence of maybe being able to find out who these people are, as, you know, as kind of relatively straightforwardly as we can now. Yeah, just to expand on that, 
from the classic album The Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers, uh, a Q magazine article uh, that came out in November 2019. Um, in the pre-internet age, the effort required to research the litany of obscure philosophical and political references in a song like Archives of Pain and of Walking Abortion were prodigious. Um, whenever the band was in London, Edwards would frequent the hallowed reading room of, of the British Museum following in the footsteps of Karl Marx, George Orwell and Virginia Woolf. Mm. He also made regular pilgrimages to Compendium on Camden High Street, the capital's preeminent independent bookshop. Richie must have bought well over 150 books from there. It was a running joke in the band, says Bradfield today. They also sold academic research papers. He'd have a suitcase on the road just filled with books. That's what you had to do before the internet came along. This is it, isn't it? You had to read books. I don't get... know how lucky you are, these people. I know, nowadays. I know. Just a couple of blokes Pouring over liner notes We're the rock geeks Yeah, we're the rock geeks You have reached the end of side one. Well done. Take the rest of the programme. Please fast forward and turn over the cassette. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us. 